Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad we've got this uh, afternoon to spend together. Can't wait, as a matter of fact. It is Thursdays, and oftentimes on Thursday we have Guy Talk to get things started, and today is no exception. We've got the uh, power panel in place already. Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, Pastor Justin Jepson, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is joining us after a two-week time off. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Peter, you had two weeks off. How are you feeling? Ready to be oh, back? I, you know, I did it. Rested, energized. You can just imagine. I'm, I'm ready to go 15 rounds with these guys today. No problem. Yeah. Oh, really? Awesome. Well, we want to uh, always invite listeners to uh, text in a question, 877-933-2484. We love tackling any uh, issues, any scripture, anything you'd like us to discuss. We are open, happy, and willing to do so. Again, that number is 877 Now, to get things started today, I want to go to a passage in Matthew chapter 7, where it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Now, a comment that was made by a pretty well-known pastor was making this point. If a person believes somebody's up there that created this, and I don't know who he is, but I want to know him, And if that person were to have a heart attack at that moment, God, he says God could not condemn him and be just because God says, you who seek shall find. So if God made that promise, if God doesn't give him the gospel or give him a direct revelation, then he has to judge him out of another dispensation. And I was thinking about that. If you are seeking God and you die of a heart attack, does that give you the grace that covers your sin because there's no repentance and there's no conversion. Anybody want to talk about that? Because that's the only question I got. I think I think I might <laughs> tap out after these two weeks again, Bill. I appreciate coming back. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, it's the, it's the equivalent of, of like you're engaged to be married and yeah. you die before you get married. Do you die being a married person? No, you die being an engaged person. Right? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be conservative on this and say, um, if you read Acts 10. Cornelius is seeking the Lord and giving alms. And so God sends an angel to Cornelius saying, call for Peter. He will come and give you a message by which you will be saved. Right. Not that you're saved already because you're seeking the Lord. You're going to be saved when he comes and preaches Christ crucified. So I would be very nervous about saying, as long as somebody's kind of seeking the Lord when they die, they're going to heaven. I don't I don't think that's what that verse uh, means. Well, No, I agree. Yeah. But this particular pastor who is pretty well known is suggesting that that's the way the system would work. Yeah. If he was interested and seeking and he died and didn't mm-hmm. get a chance to come to a full understanding and decision mm-hmm. that the fact he was seeking would give him the grace needed. And I don't agree with that. No, I don't either. I don't think that's what Jesus meant because the same Jesus said, when the householder gets up and closes the door and you're knocking to get in, he's going to say, too late. You have to convert before you die. All right. I heard a lot of yeah. silence right now. 
<laughs> you know, no, I agree. There's and, no question and, and about you that. Guys too. I just, um, I, this, we've talked about it on your show, all of us, uh, Bill, just that, um, Sometimes when people are, are interpreting the scripture, that uh, the scripture itself is authoritative, but maybe an interpretation of it uh, is not authoritative. And it, this seems like example A of, of that kind of situation where somebody is making a claim that the scripture is not necessarily teaching. Now, I, I don't know all of what scripture is teaching here in this moment, but I think it, it's kind of interesting that at least within the original languages of it, it it's actually along the lines of keep asking and, and uh, it'll be given keep seeking. And it's it, it's it's a verb and an ongoing action that you're doing, and so the and the text itself is not clear what it is that you're going to find and what's going to be open and all of that. I'd like to actually read the entire context of Matthew seven, but um, but this idea that it relates somehow to seeking for salvation, and then if you don't quite get it uh, just before you have a heart attack or something, boy, that just <laughs> seems like a, a pretty significant misinterpretation of scripture. But what what's sad about that for me is how many people probably took that on board and, uh, and, and began to shape their lives around ideas of Jesus's kingdom based on somebody who has supposed authority to interpret the text. And, and that's just kind of a scary idea. And there's the old saying, he who waits till midnight to repent often dies at 1130. Right. Well, I know it's the Lord's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We all agree on that. The Lord knows the heart and the intention. However, if a pastor's preaching that as a means of making people feel good so they don't have to do anything at the last minute, that's a great error. Today is the day of salvation. This mm -hmm. is the moment. You can't wait mm -hmm. until later that night to do it. You do it now. But on the other hand, and equally as valid, is the fact that thief on the cross at that last moment, you know, didn't pray the sinner's prayer, didn't ask for forgiveness. He simply said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I think anytime we try to create an illusion that we can wait and not pay attention to the gospel message, we're already in trouble. But on the other hand, the Lord is eminently merciful and wants to reach as many as possible. And those who turn to him, even at the last moment, I believe he'll invite them into the kingdom. Sounds great. Is uh, Pastor Justin Jepson on? Okay. I think he's trying to get on. We'll have to connect with him somehow. Um, just because we're still social distancing, I can't see who's all on board, <laughs> which I, I'm okay with. All right. What happens when you uh, talk to people who are constantly hoping and praying for extra biblical revelation from God when they say, well, God spoke to me and said this, and you go, hmm, well, where's that in Scripture? I mean, they're they're always on the on the the hunt for uh, hearing from God. And I always say to them, you know what's funny? I, I have a hard enough time obeying what God's already <laughs> revealed in my life, let alone getting extra information from God. What are your thoughts about that? I like to tell people that 98% of what God wants you to know, he's already told you it's in the Bible. Now, there are that two, there's that 2%. Do I go, do I marry this person? Do I move to California for this job? That kind of stuff you have to struggle out in prayer and getting counsel, et cetera. But I, I you know, I, I shared weeks ago, Bill, on this show, that when I was 14, I had a dream where I saw Jesus, and he told me that God's time would be, would come in 1986. Mm -hmm. So I was on my toes that whole year, and absolutely nothing happened. And I learned from that, you can have a dream where Jesus says something, 
and it's not really from the Lord. Everything needs to be tested against the written Word of God. Absolutely, because once we start moving away from the Word into our own ideas or interpretation, that's how all the heresies have begun. And we need to be very, very careful about that. Um, my experience with the charismatic movement, my experience with the, a lot of in the Pentecostal movement, uh, people are getting words all the time, most of which never come to be. And I'm not putting anybody down. It's just a reality. Here's the thing. When the Lord gives a word, it will align with the word of God. It better align. If it doesn't align, it's not from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, the second, and the second thing is, is that when the Lord gave the words to prophets to speak in the Old Testament, and even John the Baptist and the New, these are not words any of us really are happy about sharing. These are not comforting words. These are usually words of repent, or you have uh, turned your back on the Lord. <clears throat> so we need to hear more of that, but we don't hear a lot of that because we've already got it in the Word. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, I'm jumping around into 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. You guys have any insight on that verse? I think that verse teaches your conscience can be wrong. Your heart can condemn you when you shouldn't let it condemn you. And there are things that people think are sin that aren't. And there are other people uh, who think who are doing things that are sin, and they don't realize it's a sin. So your conscience, God works in the conscience, but we cannot confuse the, the conscience with the Holy Spirit because our, uh, our hearts can condemn us, uh, but hallelujah— and I'm I'm kind of one of these guys. I can be kind of a guilt-ridden guy. Hallelujah. <laughs> God overrides our hearts mm-hmm. with the promise of salvation through Christ. So, I think one of the problems is, is that the closer you get to the light, especially when you're looking in a mirror, the more things you see you didn't see before and that need to be cleaned up or washed or whatever. But Jesus has already done the cleansing job in our hearts. He's the one that has said, by my grace, you are redeemed. But that doesn't mean we still don't see the smudges. And so the devil is very good at saying, hey, I still see that mark on your face. I still see that look sometimes in your eye. You're really a lost person. And the Lord says, no, that's not how it works. It's not based on how cleansed you are by yourself. It's how much I've cleansed you already through Jesus. Yeah, I think uh, to my understanding of that word uh, to condemn is that uh, if somebody is condemned, then there's there's no hope and no future. the The decision has been made, um, and uh, and it's sort of irrevocable at that at that point. And so, for somebody who might be struggling with sin and and feeling even somewhat enslaved to it, and and doesn't feel like uh, that there's really any way out, uh, I think part of what is the invitation there is, is is in that place. Don't ever put yourself in the position that you're beyond the pale, that that you're beyond hope, that there isn't some way and some power within uh, God's kingdom um, as, as maybe the Spirit comes and begins to intercede in your life, that, that there wouldn't be hope for change. And, and I think when in the midst of that tremendous discouragement, um, and you just don't see a way out of a situation, don't let your heart condemn you, uh, meaning don't, don't go to that place uh, of utter hopelessness where, where there is no hope and no future. It's that, that is God's decision and God's decisions alone. When he decides to let somebody go and say, okay, it's over. I'm, I'm done interceding. I'm done wooing. I'm going to let go. I'm going to cast off whatever that looks like. But, uh, but don't you dare let your heart do that, even in the midst of the most painful parts of your life. All right. I've got a 
interesting response from our first question we dealt with, but I'm going to bring it to the panel after a short break. You're listening to uh, Guy Talk, so let me know if you have a question. You can send it over in the form of a text to 877-933-2484. Be right back. Guy Talk, awfully glad to have the power panel in place. Do we have Justin yet? Has he joined us? I am here, Bill. Terrific. Finally connected. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the uh, the show. We're glad you're with Thank us you. today. So we were Great talking we were talking earlier, and a, a comment came in, and it says this. Um, this, to me, relates to the question about the pastor saying, if you are seeking and die, you'll be saved. I have never had any red flags in our church except for this one. It has been taught that you can take the mark of the beast, and as long as your heart is right, you will be saved. Can you speak to this? Well, it's it's a good, uh, that's a great question. Uh, go ahead, Tom, answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> you go first, Tom, after the. Well, when we're talking about the mark of the beast, as, as we have in Revelation and elsewhere, um, the the revelation presents you know itself uh, with a lot of imagery, and the mark of the beast is not just simply something written on you or a mark on your body. It's something you will become, and it's not simply you know just like somebody putting a chip under your arm. I know that was a big fear for a long time. A lot of teaching on that, but as I read Revelation, as I read the scriptures, it's not something like that. It's much more. This is who you become. The mark of the beast marks who you are. You are identified now with the beast himself. But if you're identified with Jesus, there is no way you're lost. You will be saved because of the identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that we get into some confusing language here. We've got to be real careful about that because uh, we're going to wind up in a society that becomes more technological our government continuing to push things that people are going to call the mark of the beast. The real mark of the beast is if you have the mind of Satan, you are antichrist and you do not want to serve him. Wow. Good, good answer. Pastor Tom Parrish. I like that. What did you think, Tom? Well, uh, I, a plus Tom. <laughs> now, now are, Tom, what do you guys the, are grading not, each other? Now, Tom, for the, <laughs> the real answer, you know, here, here, here's my thought. It's kind of like the blasphemy against the Holy spirit, which is the unforgivable sin. Once somebody does that, their heart gets so hard, they never come back to Christ. And maybe that's the way it is with the mark of the beast. Once someone receives the mark of the beast, their heart gets so hard, they never come back to Christ. I think that's the way I would would handle that. Mm. Yeah, I think along with that, if I'm understanding the question correctly, since I'm I'm playing catch-up here a little bit in the conversation, you know, just just looking at. Do you want me to reread it, Justin? Would that be helpful? Um, sure. Could you just one more time? Well, yeah. I don't know if it would be the question you would want me to uh, read as much as the uh, topic that we brought up earlier in the hour. I don't know if you heard it or not, but the idea I was didn't. the idea no. was this: that if a person uh, believes that somebody's up there that created this, I don't know who he is, but I I want to know him. 
Now, if that person were to have a heart attack at that moment, this particular pastor said God could not condemn him and be just because God says, he who seeks shall find. So since God made that promise, if God doesn't give him the gospel or give him a direct revelation, then he has to judge him out of another dispensation. That's the comment. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it's basically, it's talking about the question, the original question, not, you know, I had a comment, I thought it was about the mark of the beast, but, um, which is always a fun conversation. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> so essentially the question is being asked whether, can someone die, whether having not received Christ or not known Christ on this side of of this side of death and still be saved, essentially? Well, it's out of the what out of Matthew 7. Seek and you shall find, knock uh, and sure. the door will be open. So if you are seeking and yet you die, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. how does God look upon that situation? Because isn't sure. one of the promises, seek and you shall find? And if you're For seeking sure. yeah. and then you die, and uh, maybe you haven't, you know, I don't know, does God then judge you differently? How does it, yeah. how does it work? Sure. If you die between the seeking and the finding, essentially. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think one of the helpful biblical portraits for me in understanding the different nuances of this question, this is just this is just one. We could, you know, like any of these questions, we, it's a whole can of worms here. But I, I have found that that Acts 10 and the the story of, of Cornelius, you know, who was a God-fearing man who prayed and gave alms, and, um, and he, yet at the same time, um, God connected him with the special revelation of the gospel through the preaching of Peter, and in the process broke down all sorts of barriers and walls that had been erected through Jewish law and tradition, and thereby showing that God doesn't show partiality in whom he's giving salvation to and blessing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So uh, for me, there's a sense in which in that uh, in that portrait, that if someone's truly seeking after God in God's sovereignty, and since I believe He's sovereign over salvation, um, that He will essentially uh, those who are truly seeking will find. You know, that's uh, God, a, will, God will meet This them. is such a wise young pastor. Isn't Tell me he? about it. Yeah, because you know what, Justin? <laughs> that's pretty much what I said before you got on the line. <laughs> I, got, I got a little bit. But, but the interesting thing, though, is I first heard that from, from, from Peter Kapsner, so I don't oh, know. Right. What the, I'm just kidding. Wow. <laughs> well, no, and, I and, I, and I taught that to I, Kapsner, so it's all coming full circle. That's amazing. So, you see, there's a reason why it's called the power panel. It, yeah, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, I caught Bill's laughter in the midst of my answer, and I wonder, wait wait a second, I think I'm, I think I'm being a broken record now. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop talking. Somebody else can, can clean up what I said. <laughs> No, that was perfect. I love that. I love that biblical minds are thinking alike. That's uh, that, I love that. <laughs> All right. Anybody else got another closing thought, or should we move on? I mean, the only thing—it's it's yeah, Peter, a slightly different angle, but I don't know that it's—it's it's, it, you know entirely relevant to the whole thing. But it just calls into mind um, that within the Catholic tradition, it isn't about praying a prayer of salvation that gets you in into heaven, or this sort of even just that this idea of a transaction we can do. In the Catholic tradition, it would be that you need to be baptized, and that's why infant baptism is practiced. That started, I believe, right around the 4th century when Augustine um, brought kind of a new theological thought into the Church at large at that point, and that new theological thought was the idea of, of a total depravity that could be wiped away by the ritual of baptism. And, and so for 1,500 years, it really did persist that if you died— before you were baptized, you were buried outside of the, the cemetery in the Catholic Church because it was seen that you didn't 
um, you, even if you were seeking, you didn't find in time. And and uh, I can actually, on a personal level, I had I think two or three great aunts on my uh, my dad's side of the family that died either right away in childbirth or on the way home from the hospital. And because they did, and, and my grandmother would certainly have been seeking, she wanted to get everybody baptized for sure as immediately as possible, but they died before they got baptized. And because they did, my three great aunts were buried outside of the cemetery in the Catholic Church. Mm, wow. And, uh, and, and that persisted that way. And then it was 1960, actually, there was a, a tremendous a change within Catholic theology that, that shifted 1,500 years of tradition in which they said, well, unbaptized infants, instead of it saying that they go to hell within the, the Vatican documents, it says that unbaptized infants are now left in the hands and the grace of God. Yep. And so, so there is mm -hmm. a recognition within the Catholic tradition that, um, that some of these things are going to be a bit unknown. And, and if we trust in the fairness of God, that, um, you know, God's not, he's not going to say, you know what, that was so close. And I would love to have you in heaven, but you just didn't get the ritual done. You know, the, these kinds of ideas, I think, are troubling for some really good reasons. Um, but I just, I find it fascinating. There was a parallel fairly recently within the Catholic Church, just right around this idea. And, and people literally were digging up their loved ones and reburying them in the Catholic cemetery wow. after the sort of watershed moment in 1960. I, I don't know if my grandmother ended up doing that. Um, but certainly it hit pretty close to home within our family. And I think, I'm not sure you're referring to mm -hmm. this, but Catholics used to have a place called Limbo where unbaptized sure. babies would go. And now I think they say more what, what you're saying is we just trust the grace of God. Um, I will uh -huh. say, Peter, if I could just be a Lutheran for a minute. Uh, <laughs> infant baptism, I believe, is from the beginning. I think you can see evidence of it in the New Testament. Now, Baptists would disagree with me, but at Certainly, you find it early, early, much earlier than 400 uh, A.D. than in Augustine. Just had to say that, Peter. Oh, for, no. I, I, I for sure agree, Tom. It was definitely there. I think Augustine put a new theological okay. spin That's on, better. Uh, on, the, on it. So That's good. Indeed. And if anybody's interested, I do have uh, a document from the early church fathers, the 38 volumes, where we have pulled out all those passages. I think there's 17 or 19 that talk about Peter baptizing infants, talk about the apostles baptizing them. Now, that's not scripture, and I'm not claiming it is scripture, but it is close to scripture in the terms of the early writings. So there seems to be evidence for it way back then. Hmm, and I think yep. the early church looked at well, baptism an awful lot like circumcision. And, you know, can we say this, Bill, you brought up this pastor who's a good pastor saying something we don't think is very good. Mm -hmm. And I won't tell you who it is, but there's a wonderful preacher on television, nationally known, who preached once that you can live in impenitent sin, but as long as you prayed and accepted Christ, you're still going to heaven, which is what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, no way. But th it, the point is, pastors make mistakes. Yeah. All of us do. Yeah, Absolutely. The Word of God does not. All right, yep. let me take a little break. Guy Talk is happening, which means we want to hear from you. Let me know what question or comment you would like to ask or comment you'd like to make. 8 8-4-8-7-7-9-3-3-2-4-8-4. My power panel is outstanding. Pastors Tom Parrish, Tom Brock, Justin Jepson, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. That's a great team. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Guy Talk is happening, as it usually does on Thursdays. And we're uh, delighted to have the power panel in place. And if you've got a question, let us know what it is. Again, 877-933-2484. Before we jump back into the questions, Peter, how did golf go today and how'd you shoot? (laughs) Thanks for asking. It was, uh, let's just say it was a nice day out there today. The weather was good. Yeah, we're going to leave it at that, huh? (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's good enough. No, no shot by shot round needed. We would need a lot of minutes to go through, you know, all of those shots. Right, right. And I understand. I understand you have a, a putter that floats, and they think yeah. you throw it into the pond. I, I do. I, I've tested that theory several times, so yes, it keeps working out. Good. All right. Here's a question: a Listener jumped in with, "Are Christians being good neighbors when they allow public schools to teach the children of unbelievers?" to embrace LBGT values and sex outside of marriage. Are Christians wow. being good neighbors when they allow yeah, public that, schools... Yeah, can you that, say that one more time? I, yes. just, I think I missed the first part. That's fine. Are Christians being good neighbors when they allow public schools to teach the children of unbelievers to embrace the LBGT values and sex outside of marriage? Mm. Well, I don't know that I can speak to whether or not it's being a good neighbor or not. I, I think one um, one other quick angle on it, I'll say this, is, um, you know, we, we've had our kids in public school, we've had them in private school, and we've had them in homeschool, and and uh, it's not one size fits all for all the kids. But, but what I will say is when we started the educational journey maybe 15 years ago with our kids, uh, school was different at that time. There, there was a lot of watershed change about eight years ago in our country when um, some of the amendments passed that made gay marriage the law of the land. And and since then, social activism has made so many different forms of transgenderism and, and gender dysphoria. Um, again, it's not the law of the land as much as it is maybe sort of the the dogma of the school system. And uh, and there's safe months and safe spaces and safe things that, that people are taught. So I, you know, how do we react as neighbors? I'm not entirely sure how proactive uh, we can and should be. I know that there are church ministries that certainly want to be proactive in the schools and, and change some of the teaching, but they're fighting against the the law of the land. And that's, that's always going to be a losing battle on that level. But on the flip side, what we've noticed in this pandemic is everybody's been forced to sort of homeschool, that now with the prospect of looming this fall, that maybe schools are going to be opening again, at least on some kind of level. Um, my wife, Hallie, along with a, a few other um, people that we know that homeschool, they are getting inundated with requests from people who never would have maybe thought to homeschool before um, and, and you know gave it a shot in sort of the weird way we had to give it a shot the last few months. And they're saying, how can we continue this? We are now beginning to recognize how our kids are being impacted in school in a variety of ways, and we don't necessarily want to put them back into the school. So I guess our form of good neighborliness is, is um, that Hallie is spending hours upon hours, even weekly, with, with uh, mothers and fathers who are wanting to make that change uh, and, and shift the way the educational process is going. Just at 6.30 tonight, in just a couple hours, another couple's coming over again to, to talk through that process. And I think that that is being at least passively available. It's not being proactive in trying to change the curriculum. I get that. But I think that has proven a losing battle. But it doesn't mean that we can't intercede and, and help in some different ways. Mm. Um, you know, Bill, I got to talk about this. It is evil when public schools are promoting homosexuality, transgenderism, bisexuality to kids. That's evil. It's super evil when the church is doing it. And I remember years ago uh, standing at the door shaking hands 
and the people are coming out, and a couple comes out. Pastor Brock, the reason we're coming to your church is at my other Lutheran church, the Sunday school teacher is a lesbian with a partner. We don't want our daughter to be around that. And I drove by that church the other day. Now the, the pastor of the church is a woman with a wife. And and if I can just tell you, everybody, <laughs> I last night, I don't know if I couldn't sleep. I, I saw something last night that I've got to tell you about. If you go to pastorstudy.org and you hit the Facebook button, you'll see that my two latest uh, posts. Number one, the head bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is the most liberal branch of Lutheranism, has a minute and a half video you will see there where she's so enthused that it's Gay Pride Month. And she's so happy that last week the Supreme Court affirmed the LGBT agenda and that the Lutheran Church ELCA now also is affirming transgender pastors, practicing homosexual pastors. And this is coming from the head bishop of the ELCA. And then the second article if you go to this, uh, again, you go to pastorstudy.org, hit the Facebook. The second article coming out of the ELCA, you go to their official website, and here's an article on how they want us to now use LGBTQIA plus pronouns. So if there's a man who thinks is a woman, they want you to call him her. There, There's an ELCA pastor. It's, it's a woman who looks like a man. She doesn't want to be called him or her. You're supposed to call him or her they. I mean, and, and the ELCA thinks this is a good thing. So, you know, it's evil when the public schools are promoting this. It's hyper evil, super evil when the church does it. And I'll name the churches, the United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopal Church in America, the Disciples of Christ, and soon to be the United Methodists. They're about to split on these very issues. So find, I say to my, I'm a Lutheran myself, all the other Lutheran branches are fine. Get out of the ELCA. Stop giving them your money and join one that's biblical, uh, Missouri Synod, uh, you know, free Lutherans, etc. Okay, guys, when was the last time in your church, congregationally, you sang Onward Christian Soldiers? Most of us can't remember. <laughs> I grew up with that song. We have become a passive Christianity in America where we're so afraid to speak up because we'll get labeled or be called intolerant, or be called unloving, that we have a tendency to withdraw from the public sphere. Unfortunately, what we're doing is we are turning over an awful lot of people, and now they're doing, uh, you know, therapy and beginning to give hormones to kids that are as young as eight, nine years old, because Billy thinks he's really, you know, Billy Jean. This is crazy, and yet we're being primarily silent on it as a church, because we have this image that we should be loving and gentle. I look at Jesus. Jesus was loving and gentle. He also was a warrior who spoke the truth and was willing to die for what he believed. I'm not sure how many American Christians today have any concept of a willingness to die for the truth of the gospel. What we need to do, I'm married to a principal. My wife was a principal in Minneapolis for many, many years. She said the basic problem is at those board meetings, it is the activists who show up. Yep. The Christians aren't there. If the Christians are there, they're way too emotional, rather than being logical, having thought this through. We've got to be able to come in with solid arguments, solid science, our biblical truth and why we stand on that, and not be afraid to keep coming back and doing that over and over and over, uh, because we have to let them know we're not going away. Yep. We're going to keep coming back and talking about this 
until they hear. And Tom, mm-hmm. let's talk about hormone blockers. That uh, the ELCA Lutheran Church two summers ago put an 11-year-old boy who thinks he's a girl on stage to promote transgenderism to 31,000 Lutheran teenagers, and they cheered this boy as a girl. And that child abuse. And, and that same child is getting hormone blocker. The, the, uh, his, I refuse, or I refuse to say her. His father is an ELC Lutheran pastor. His mother is an activist for transgender causes, and she is so thrilled that guess who's paying uh, for the hormone blockers for her twelve-year-old now? He's, I think, he's uh, twelve or thirteen. The ELCA health care plan. You're offering dollars at work. So, again, it's evil when the culture is promoting it. But when the liberal mainline Protestant denominations are, are going down that road, uh, come Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think uh, just to speak a little into this as I'm hearing you brothers talk and, and um, you know, again, I think they're – Going back to the question of what is a, what does a loving neighbor look like, you know, and I think that love is the the very thing that always holds intention, both grace and truth, you know. So to your point earlier, Tom, I mean, Jesus really came to people as as they were, um, and but yet because because he's a God, he was God of grace, but yet also he doesn't leave them as they are because he's a God of truth. And that truth really seeks to restore and transform and really um, bring about the the order of that of that perfect shalom of that of that abundant life. And I think just one other angle to this too, you know, as we look at just where our culture and our world is heading, and you know, calling good evil and evil good. Um, I think there's gonna, there's going to reach a tipping point and a boiling point. This is something that actually I think you know, Peter, you and I have talked about before. There's those that have gone through the process, taking hormone blockers, that type of thing. They have even had sex reassignment surgery. And then they're realizing that they have been sold the bill of lies, and they yeah. realize this is not what they this is not what they want. This is not what they, you know, they they realize they made a mistake. They've they've wandered down this path of deception, and now there's these sexual refugees that don't know where they are supposed to go, or who they belong, and this is where the church needs to show up in grace and truth, and be a loving neighbor and and receive them and be with them and journey with them and cry with them and partner with with Christ and bringing about the the restoration that only the gospel can provide you know and and I think alongside of that too you know is you know I think sometimes the best argument of truth is is experience in the in the sense that can the church continue to truly model yes we we need to come combat evil we need to stand up we need to take take up the full armor of God um, and engage in that way but we also if we can, if the church can truly display the beauty and the wholeness of God's design and purpose for marriage, I think that will also be the thing that will attract people to say, actually, because we haven't done it good. No one does it perfectly, but I think history will show too. We, we've there's been so many failed uh, marriages and, and moral failures of spiritual leaders that unfortunately that's tainted the view of, of Christ's church and His design for life and marriage and the family. And so I think to, it's as much as we can continue. To move forward in grace and truth and model the beauty of that design, um, that that is going to be something that will compel people uh, to return to Christ, I believe. Yeah, no, I, I, Justin, I think what you just said there in the end is so compelling to me on, on so many levels because I, I am all for the battle of this, and, and uh, mm-hmm. I actually really enjoy engaging in the battle. Uh, the, the question mm-hmm. for me is not whether we should engage in the battle. The question is, is what is the method or the strategy of the battle? And if the strategy and the right. method— 
is that we need to go and change the curriculum of the schools. I would I would just suggest that that won't happen because we're fighting the actual law of the land and what is required from a curriculum standpoint for teachers to teach. And so um, are there different methods or different strategies that we need to do? Well, well one, Justin, is what you just said, is uh, the, the, the primary pattern I hear from my students in my sexuality class that have grown up in evangelical churches uh, of, a, of a number of different varieties and stripes, they would say almost to a student that we simply didn't talk about sexuality. We, we were not uh, empowered. Mm -hmm. We were not equipped. We were not prepared. So when the, when the schools were teaching all this baloney, we didn't know how to respond. We didn't know how to think about it. We didn't know how to, um, to have a different pathway or a different way of understanding. So I think for the, for the church to increasingly engage in the conversation within its communities to equip and empower our young people as they're being taught in the schools with a, with a contrasting and a different way of understanding is, is a really important starting point. And then, then it is. I mean, I, you know, I think about that passage in Romans where it says, obey your authorities. And, and uh, sometimes it gets misunderstood to me in that we just carte blanche, obey whatever authorities that we have in the civil government. And, and of course, that doesn't hold up um, to just practical life. If the authorities and government were asking us to kill each other, we obviously wouldn't do it. It would mean Martin Luther King Jr. was completely wrong in all of what he did and, and all of those things. That, that passage is much more Paul saying to the Roman community, um, don't stick your head up above water right now and, and get all resistant to the government because they're going to kill you. <laughs> so, so just take it, you know, take it a little slow and, and head into the catacombs and practice that your faith um, in in different kinds of ways, continue to bear light and, and shrewdly bear light in the world around you that you can compel as many people as possible back to the gospel and back to the kingdom. And, and I think that is one of the main questions that we have as our society is becoming increasingly secularized and all of the civil rulings are increasingly going against the historic morals of the Christian faith. How do Christians continue to shine a light and fight despite that if they can't change the legislation and change the laws? That doesn't mean the fight is over. It just means that the fight changes. Did you, did you read that, or did that just come off the top of your head? I, <laughs> I, I, Justin was actually texting me That's all those impressive. things. That's impressive. I was just reading them. <laughs> all right, I need to take a little break. Uh, just had another listener say, if fighting the law of the land was always a losing battle, slavery would still be legal and women could not vote. Very okay. wise. Very wise. We'll take a little good break. Word. We'll be right back Very with more God word. Talk. Let me know if you got a question or a comment. 877-93-FAITH. Back to the show. Guide Talk is happening. Had a powerful uh, discussion today. Thank you for participating. A lot of great uh, questions and comments have come in from listeners. We still have time for another one. If you want to send it over, text it to 877-933-2484. Just to uh, move on to another topic. In First Peter chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7, we talks about how we must rejoice even when we are enduring many trials. Mm -hmm. So, Maybe as pastors and thinkers, and you can give us some insight as to how, why should we be rejoicing, and how do we go about that? You know, I think if we think we've got it rough as as conservative Christians in a culture which is 
going the opposite direction. Imagine being a Christian when Peter wrote those words, where Christians were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and, and had to hide out. And so I think the way, I mean, I, I, honestly, this stuff drives me nuts. And I have to just get on my knees and pray and know that some of it's not going to get fixed till the second coming. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Bible does say the joy of the Lord is your strength. So God doesn't want us anxious. He doesn't want us angry. And what calms me down is having my one hour with the Lord in the morning where I pray, where I read my Bible. It also calms me down to go to church, hear good sermons. Mm-hmm. So if I didn't do that, I, I would be a mess. And and so I think keep your prayer life strong, read the Word, get into some kind of Christian service where you can get your mind off of this and help other people, and then make sure you're in Christian fellowship. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been uh, just kind of swimming and studying in the in the Beatitudes recently. So I, I the this idea of you know Jesus's word saying, "Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And this idea of rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And uh, and I think part of the rejoicing in the midst of persecution and suffering comes from the realization that we entrust ourselves first and foremost to God who judges justly, that the, the, that the scales of justice will be balanced um, at the end. But also this idea that, you know, if I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake, for, for my faith in Christ, not only is that stemming from my identification with Jesus as he was persecuted, so we will be. But also, I believe that those who are being persecuted, um, we see all throughout the the book of Acts and even throughout the history of the Church, wherever persecution happens, it's always used by God in a sovereign way to advance the gospel. And so I think there's a sense in which that this persecution kind of tips our, our focus towards the eternal reward that awaits us. And and how even our very lives, like Christ, um, are are truly that living sacrifice that um, that is shining that light in that dark place. And so, um, and to Tom's point too, you know, we we are, we we live in a in a in a in a place where there's so much comfort and convenience. And I think, you know, that persecution ultimately will really brings about a purity of of heart and a realization of what truly matters and what actually carries eternal significance. Mm. Yeah, you know, Justin, when you're talking there, um, I, I cheated a little bit here, and, and I, I looked up the word, because I've never looked up the word rejoice before in, in the English from the original <laughs> language. And so so in the cheating, I don't know, just uh, in, in this, it, it says that to be favorably disposed towards or to lean towards something. And so I think what that tells me is, is one of the things I've always been troubled by is I haven't, you know, I, I sort of resisted the idea of being like, woohoo, rejoice. You know, this is awesome what's happening to me right now. And, you know, when, it, when it's horrible and, and I never, mm-hmm. that, that just, you know, that didn't, that didn't hit right, right? And, but what you're mm-hmm. saying is that from the perspective of heaven and from the perspective of eternity and, and the things maybe be informed in us and stuff, that it doesn't mean that you're going to just love being a part of it, but to remain mm-hmm. somehow leaning towards it or being favorably disposed to say, I know there's more to this story than just the, the mm-hmm. pain of the trial right now. So I'm going to keep mm-hmm. leaning into this and I'm not going to deny the sorrow and I'm not going to deny the pain and I'm not going to just sort of try to cheer it away or anything, but, but I am going to keep leaning into it because there's more here than, than just the sorrow itself. I think this is a whole neglected area in Christianity. What I mean by that is I've led a lot of small prayer groups where I would have anywhere from 
five up to 15, 20 people. And I've done this for years and years and years. And we come together and I would lead the prayer time and I would say, okay, let's now take the first 10 minutes of our time together and just rejoice in the Lord. Let's just speak joy about what Jesus means to us. And the first minute, guys, is terrific. And then it begins to just go off. And all of a sudden, <laughs> by two, three minutes, everybody's getting real silent. We haven't really experienced the understanding of biblical joy to the depth to where it determines how we live in this chaotic world. We need mm -hmm. that. And I, I think all the years that I taught the scriptures, uh, I don't know of any curriculum I developed. I don't know of any solid teaching I developed on how to gain that joy in your heart and really live in that joy. Uh, and as a result, most Christians, I don't think, have a clue what to do with that. If I can bring up mm -hmm. another verse, this is uh, from the same book in First Peter, in uh, verses 8 and 9, it says that, you know, we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because of our salvation through our faith in Christ. So, Tom, to your point, if we're, uh, if we're running out of praise after one minute, um, we're probably not walking that out very well, are we? Well, there are a lot of... I think that's very common in the church. Uh, one of the ways I always would start Sunday school uh, when I would teach adults, and I've taught a lot of adults, I would start out in the very beginning after I had a brief prayer, and I'd say, all right, I want everybody here, let's testify to what Jesus has done in your life this week. Tell me about answered prayer. Tell me a miracle you saw this week. Tell me how the Lord gave you a divine appointment this week. And there were many weeks, guys, I'll be honest, nobody said anything. I don't think we've looked well. I think it may be there. We just haven't looked well into life to see the movement of Jesus, the great things he's doing, and then to be able to share that with one another. So uh, I, I think there is a lot of salvation out there. I don't think there's a lot of depth out there. And that's not being critical. It's, the, it's my problem, too. How do I really live in joy when I'm under persecution or I'm being rejected or I'm being yelled at or made fun of? And Tom Brock and I have gone through a lot of that in the church. We know the reality. <laughs> Anybody, another comment on that? We're all good? Okay. No one is good but God alone, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> See, I worked with Tom Brock for... Like that, Tom. <laughs> I, I worked with Tom Brock for a number of years, and under that circumstance, I learned what joy was all about. <laughs> there you go. Wow. <laughs> all right, I'm going to stay in First Peter, uh, the same uh, chapter uh, 1. And, of course, uh, it calls us not to live the way we used to before we knew Christ, and then states that we should be holy in all that we do. So do you feel that you have had that transformation in your life where you were once um, not living the way you should, and then you came to faith, and now you are doing your acting in holiness in all you do? Or have you guys been believers for so long that this question feels moot? Uh-huh. It's never moot. Okay. It, it never is. I, for years and years and years, I started my day out with a very similar prayer. Uh, today, Lord Jesus, I affirm again, you are the one and only Lord and Savior. I lay down my life before you today. Use me today for your honor and glory. And if this is my last day on earth, let me die well, honoring your name. I think that when we lose that sense of being thankful for salvation, boy, it's pretty hard to live in this world without getting caught up in everything that goes on around us. So I want to keep that salvation and my purpose uh, fresh in my mind and uh, look at every opportunity as maybe my last, but an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. 
And your prayer is reminding me what I do now, Tom. In the last, I don't know, six months, when I go to bed now, one of my prayers is, Lord, thank you for my nice warm bed. I live in a nice townhouse. And God, thank you I'm not in hell. And I heard a pastor say once, any day I'm above ground and not in hell is a good day. And when we, you know, when we think on the fact that we really all do deserve hell, but Christ has saved us from that, that I think fuels us to go through anything that, yeah, I'm not enjoying life. It's a rough time to be an American as our ideals are getting shot down by the Supreme Court. But God, thank you. I'm saved. I'm Mm -hmm. going to heaven. I'm not in hell. Mm -hmm. And that can fuel us to uh, just to have the joy of our salvation in the midst of all the culture falling apart around us. Yeah. Gentlemen, great discussion today. It's been you know, wonderful being together, and I look forward to the time that we hopefully can soon all be in the same room. That'd be a blast. Once again, I enjoy your fellowship and your company so much and your wisdom and willingness to be on Guy Talk. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Bill. Thank, Thank you, Bill. Bill. All right, that wraps up our show in this hour. We're going to go ahead into the next hour, and I'm going to be uh, joined by Dr. Eric Bargerhoff, who is probably one of my favorite guests. Um, and uh, we're going to talk to him and just be back in about three minutes. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.